The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, and welcome to the last episode of the Crimopedia podcast for 2022. It's hard to believe that this year is already over. 2022 was a very big year for true crime and cold cases. This year we saw many cases get solved, and many families get justice. And so today, I thought it was only right to end off the year with a case that had its most recent development only three weeks ago on December 8th, 2022, after 65 years of silence. Many of you have likely heard about the infamous case of the boy in the box, a case from 1957 where a young child was found deceased inside of a bassinet box in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, United States. The case has been covered by almost every famous podcaster, YouTuber, and documentary filmmaker. There's even an episode of BuzzFeed's Unsolved about the boy in the box. The case garnered international media attention for many reasons, but one being that police initially thought they'd be able to identify this young boy very easily. It's not often that a child gets lost without so much as a missing persons report, or some record of him somewhere. But unfortunately, to the surprise of the Philadelphia law enforcement team, this was hardly the case. And only recently did we learn this child's true name, Joseph Augustus Zarelli. With that, I think it's a good time to jump right in. North America was a very different place back in 1957. Eisenhower was inaugurated for a second term as United States president, The New York City Mad Bomber was finally arrested. A 5.7 moment magnitude earthquake shook the Bay Area of San Francisco, and we were still in the midst of the Cold War. That year, the first Boeing 707 took flight, Steve Harvey was born, and Elvis Presley's debut film, Loving You, hit the theaters. But while future history was unfolding, in February of 1957, Something happened in Fox Chase, Northeast Philadelphia, that would change the lives of investigators forever, more than anything else that could have possibly happened that year. In a shallow wooded area off of Susquehanna Road in Philadelphia, where there were no houses and not a person in sight, there was an ever so slightly denser area of underbrush in the forest. This area was used as a place for local residents to dump their leftover trash illegally, according to some reports. So although this area was desolate, it wasn't entirely out of the ordinary to see a straggler or two, see some trash items, and maybe see someone up to no good. But on February 25th of 1957, there was evidently a much more sinister version of no good that someone else had clearly been up to. According to some reports I've read, A young man by the name of Frederick Bernones driving along Susquehanna Road spotted a rabbit and decided to chase it into the forest. However, upon venturing into the forest area, instead of finding a rabbit, he found a cardboard box laying on its side that previously housed a bassinet from J.C. Penney. Inside of this box, instead of the bassinet, 
he found a young deceased child wrapped in a quote-unquote well-worn plaid blanket. Upon his discovery, Frederick had to weigh his options. Investigators would later discover that it was a habit of his to drive up to the nearby Good Shepherd School for Wayward Girls and spy on them. So Frederick had to weigh the risk of getting caught doing so or having to explain why he was in the forest that day. Consequently, the discovery of this young boy in a box was not reported to the police immediately. However, reportedly upon consultation with some Catholic priests, Frederick decided to phone his discovery into the police, and a report was made to Detective Sergeant Charles Gargani of the Philadelphia Police Homicide Team, and a subsequent investigation was opened the very next day, on February 26. Upon arrival to the scene, investigators from Philadelphia police could easily see that the bassinet box containing the boy was weathered on the outside, but it was clean and dry on the inside. The boy found looked malnourished and thin. This feature, plus the weathering on the bassinet box and the February chill, made it quite difficult for investigators to determine approximately when the boy would have died. However, the medical examiner's original report states that it was likely that the boy had been dead for a few days at the very least, possibly even a few weeks. Although, due to the degree of weathering on the box, it's likely that he wasn't in the forest for very long. Upon closer examination, investigators could see that the boy's light blonde to brownish hair had recently been cut in a haphazard way. It was choppy, uneven, and some of the residual hair was even left over on his body. This haircut looked to have been done in a rush, and the Doe Network describes it as quote-unquote odd and bowl-shaped. The boy's fingernails and toenails had recently been cut as well, in addition to his eyebrows being styled but they seemed a bit more uniform and well-kept. Upon transporting the boy in the box to the medical examiner's office, Dr. Joseph Spellman was able to obtain his weight and height, and through that, he was able to determine an approximate age range. Given the state of his malnourishment, it was difficult to determine exactly how old he was, but he did have a full set of baby teeth, which was a clue. The boy found was about three feet tall, almost 40 pounds, and police estimated him to be between four and six years old. Unfortunately though, the ages of four to six is the most narrow window that anyone could decide on. During the autopsy, it was noted that the boy's body had signs of severe bruising on his legs. Some speculate that maybe this indicated a pattern of abuse he was suffering, which to some may align with the state of malnourishment he was in. However, x-rays performed show no prior history of fractures indicating patterns of abuse, so it's likely that these contusions all happened at the same time. In fact, it was ruled that this was actually the case, and it was this very set of injuries that caused the boy's death. According to Philadelphia Police Captain Jason Smith, the boy had several additional injuries, including multiple abrasions, a subdural hemorrhage, and pleural effusions. In regular English, this means that whoever beat this young child, they did incredible damage to him, enough to cause bleeding in his brain and damage to his lung tissues resulting in fluid buildup. Some other interesting findings upon autopsy included the fact that the boy's fingers were wrinkled in the same way that happens when you've been underwater for a little while, indicating that this had been the case for the boy as well. At some point before or during death, the boy had been placed in water. 
The boy's esophagus contained small trace amounts of a brown substance or residue that some have speculated to be remnants of baked beans, and that will become important later. Others say it's bile or stagnant gastric contents. Some may speculate that it's vomit. To me, and to the medical examiner, it was pretty unclear what this substance was. And the autopsy report says that the stomach itself was otherwise empty. But again, this detail, as well as those wrinkled fingers, will become important later when we discuss theories, so keep this in mind. It also looked like the boy had several paper-thin surgical scars, one near his groin area, one by his ankles, and evidence of another procedure previously occurring near his eye, possibly related to an infection. Police were hopeful that these features could help identify this boy. It was obvious that he had a caretaker at some point in his life, someone to cut his nails, someone to bring him to the doctor's office when he needed medical attention. So they were hopeful that a family member would come forward. According to an archived report that I read from the Philadelphia City paper, investigators thought that finding this boy's family wouldn't be too much of a hassle. They figured someone would come forward saying that his death was an accident, maybe that he ran away. There would be some sort of explanation, justified or not, as to why a young child was found in the woods, deceased, and in such horrible condition, but this was hardly the case. Reports I found told stories of over 270 police academy recruits searching the area where the boy was found with rigor. During these searches, police came across various items of interest. A man's corduroy blue cap with a leather strap on the back, a child's scarf, a pair of children's black shoes, and a man's white handkerchief with the letter G embroidered on it. When these pieces of evidence were collected for further analysis, one by one, they were inspected in great detail. The handkerchief with the G on it reportedly had what looked like short strands of hair which were collected for forensic analysis, whatever that really meant in 1957, but it's unclear what the results of that testing were, aside from the fact that they were conclusively determined not to belong to the boy in the box. The blue corduroy cap found was also further investigated, and found to be sold at a particular shop in Philadelphia, whose owner distinctly remembered the purchaser. According to americasunknownchild.net, the seller of this cap noted that the man, approximately aged between 26 and 30 years old, specifically asked her to sew in the leather strap that was found with the cap. According to her, these hats didn't originally come with a leather strap, so this ask was a unique one, and one that the seller recalled distinctly. However, this lead, despite maybe promising at the time, led absolutely nowhere. Additionally, the bassinet box itself seemed to be a promising lead at first. Investigators were able to determine that the box the boy was found inside was sold by a specific J.C. Penney in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania between December 3rd, 1956 and February 16th, 1957. Even further, they were able to determine that only 12 of these bassinets were sold, but apparently, cross-checking each purchaser of the bassinet, if investigators even did that because reports do vary, wasn't enough to pinpoint any reliable suspects. But again, this point will come up when we discuss theories, so keep this one in mind. Similarly, when the pair of children's black shoes were collected and sized up against the boy's feet, they were much larger than the boy would have ever worn. However, it was unclear and sort of still is, in my opinion, 
if these shoes were significant. Despite not belonging to the boy in the box, it was reported that these shoes were found in much cleaner condition than any of the other items or debris in the area, considering it was a muddy forest and again, reportedly an infamous dumping ground. This point to me really stands out, and it indicates to me at least that these shoes weren't there for very long. Is it possible that whoever left these shoes behind could have seen the box with the boy in it before it was reported? Is it possible they could have crossed paths with whoever dumped the box? These are just some of the many questions people still grapple with today, even just regarding these pieces of evidence. And although we now know this young boy's identity, these questions will have to be revisited in order to know exactly what happened to him. The Philadelphia Inquirer would print approximately 400,000 flyers with descriptions of the boy in the box found in hopes of possibly jogging someone's memory about anything suspicious they may have seen in the area. However, after no luck, in a move that is relatively uncommon in modern practice, at least from what I've seen, police decided to release a post-mortem photograph of the boy in the box. They dressed the boy up in modern clothes and sat him upright, likely in an effort to mimic what he might have looked like when he was alive. There are several post-mortem photographs readily available of the boy in the box, so I caution you when doing your own research. Um, I encourage you to do so, but just be warned that any given link you click on might have a post-mortem photograph attached to it. After all of their efforts, the Philadelphia police were not finding any success with identifying the boy that they had found. All efforts to search the area, look into each piece of evidence recovered, plead to the public for assistance, it was all fruitless. This was a humbling surprise after law enforcement initially anticipated solving this case with ease. Like I mentioned, they figured someone would come forward with some sort of information or explanation about who this boy is and why he ended up deceased in the forest. And instead, what they got was none of the evidence or clues panning out. In light of an immediate hot trail to follow, the boy ended up being buried in a potter's field, a cemetery dedicated to the unnamed, unknown, and unclaimed. This potter's field was located in the northeast side of Philadelphia, and his headstone read, quote, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy. This potter's field, the last of its kind in Philadelphia, was decommissioned back in 1987. But well before that, many local residents had strong feelings about the boy being placed there and were compelled to organize a better final resting place for him. From the reports I read, it seems like it just didn't sit right with local residents. A young child who had suffered immensely before being abandoned shouldn't be abandoned also in death. It didn't sit right with them that he was at a gravesite that was dedicated to people who were unclaimed. People were convicted in their ability to claim him one day, hopefully with justice and the work of law enforcement, although by this point, it was kind of taking a while. Local residents arranged for the boy in the box to be buried at the Ivy Hill Cemetery in the Cedarbrook area of Philadelphia instead, with all of the arrangements, including the funeral service, all paid for by donation. 
The funeral was attended by a large portion of the local residents, with many of them attaching themselves to the case of this boy and his violent, untimely death. People were determined to see this case solved and continued to support police's efforts, as well as maintain and decorate his new headstone on volunteer time. But until very recently, the headstone read, quote, America's unknown child. And although the public were assured that one day they would be able to put his real legal name on this headstone and find out what happened to him, at that point, as far as they were concerned, the search to find his identity, let alone his killer, was essentially cold. In the 90s, the case of the boy in the box was sent to the Vidoc Society, a newly founded, lucrative society of law enforcement agents and forensic analysts of every kind that, quote, provides pro bono expert assistance to the law enforcement community in solving their cold case homicides. According to the Vidoc Society website, they work entirely on invitation by police agencies. They do not conduct independent investigations. Their membership list is not public, and nobody there is doing any work to seek any recognition, just to solve cases. From my research, I get the sense that the individuals of the Vidoc Society are the real grassroots type, the ones really passionate about law and justice. And it was founded in Philadelphia, and how convenient, because it was their law enforcement team on their own home turf that needed the most immediate help. By this time, the 90s, over 30 years had passed since the boy in the box had been found. All efforts to identify him and figure out what happened to him had been completely in vain. There had been no viable, tangible theories that anyone had been able to come up with to solve this case, and all of this was despite an attempt at DNA extraction back in 1988. Law enforcement had been trying, they had been following up on tips they were receiving, they just weren't getting anywhere, and they were hopeful that the Vidoc Society might take them where they need to be. Although the Vidoc Society proved to be a promising avenue to travel down in solving this already decades-old case, and although their insight proved to be helpful in certain aspects, they would not be the ones to solve the case or identify the boy in the box, and it would be another 30 years or so until that would happen. We fast forward to 2016, and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or NECMEC, released a forensic facial reconstruction of the boy in the box and finally added him to their database. Since then, there have been several artist renderings done to try and demonstrate to the public what he might have looked like while alive, again, likely with the same goal of just trying to jog anyone's memory. However, it seemed like if anyone did recognize him or did know something, at this point, with this many years past, they just weren't coming forward. The case of the boy in the box was infamous, always. It's one that I heard about very early on in my career or journey, I guess we can say, into true crime content consumption. To me, the boy in the box is on par with Brittany Drexel, the Moore's murders, or even Dyatlov Pass. It's just one of those cases that everybody knows about. And that was the case back when it happened, and it's been the case all throughout these decades. At the very least, everybody in Pennsylvania and the surrounding states knew what was happening. 
But thankfully, by this point, as we know, in 2016, when they did the artist rendering and no one was coming forward, they knew now that technology had advanced to a point where they could pursue a different avenue, one that has been responsible for solving a lot of cases in the last few years. And that's DNA technology. If nobody was going to come forward with what they knew about the boy in the box abandoned on Susquehanna Road back in 1957, then the investigators were going to go back to square one. And that's exactly what they did. In 2019, Philadelphia police got a court order to exhume the boy in the box once again for a second try at a viable DNA extraction with new technology. Despite being what seemed like a disorderly box of puzzle pieces, the boy's very fragmented mitochondrial DNA was able to be extracted from a tooth and then assembled into something cohesive. The piecewise DNA they had was valuable. They knew that with these pieces, they'd be able to assemble a DNA profile. And they also knew that for the first time in over 60 years, that with the advent of ancestry, 23andMe, and GEDmatch, it was only a matter of time before someone in the extended family of the boy in the box, still alive today, would upload their own DNA profile for comparison. And they were right. On November 30th of 2022, Philadelphia police made a surprising announcement, one that many people may have woefully assumed would never happen. On that day, they announced that they had identified the boy in the box, and they did it using the genetic profile assembled from the pieces extracted in 2019, 65 years after his discovery. Genetic genealogist Misty Gillis was able to match the boy's DNA profile to one uploaded by a cousin on his maternal side. Through the latter half of 2020 and through all of 2021, she spent her time piecing together this family tree, trying to identify who the boy's parents were. Misty was able to work back through the genetic family tree until she stumbled upon someone who she believed may have been the boy's biological mother. Once she figured out who his mom was, law enforcement was able to use this information to file for a court order and receive his original birth certificate. Armed with this document, police now knew the boy in the box's name. They also knew his father. They also knew his birthday. And for the first time in 65 years, they finally were able to answer one of their thousands of questions about what happened to him and who he was. On December 8th, 2022, only a few weeks ago, it was announced by the Philadelphia police that the name of America's unknown child was Joseph Augustus Zarelli, and he was born on January 13th, 1953, making him only four years old when he was killed. Investigators are now doing their best to protect the identities of Joseph's mother and father, both who are now deceased, but for the sake of Joseph's surviving siblings that he has on quote-unquote both sides. Although I will say that protection of Joseph's family's identity is thinly veiled. Investigators say that Joseph's family lived around the area of 61st and Market Street in West Philadelphia, which is about a 45-minute drive now from where he was found off of Susquehanna Road. 
Armed with his last name and the intersection that his family lived at in the 1950s, if you do 20 minutes of digging on Reddit, you'll be able to see the very plausible family tree that many have identified together through a mixture of users' own personal ancestry accounts and deductive reasoning. This and the detail of there are siblings on both sides, meaning that both Joseph's mom and his dad had kids outside of their own marriage, has made it quite easy to identify who these people are. But I won't discuss any names here. If you are interested, I'll post the link to the subreddit for Joseph Augustus Zarelli on my website at crimopediapod.ca, but we have no idea what the family knows about this boy or what their involvement was, if any, in his death. So I'm not going to sit here and put names out there because for all we know, although it's very likely that everybody with their collective information is correct with who these people are, we could be very wrong. As much as giving the boy in the box his proper name is a huge win and a large step in this case, especially one this old, it still stands that his manner of death was homicide and whoever murdered him has never faced justice for it. Over the years, there have been many theories, and although I spoke about how the case was effectively cold from the beginning, because it was, investigators have done their due diligence in following up on claims that people have made. I'm going to give you some insight into a few theories that have arisen over the years. The ones I'm going to share with you today have caught my eye when doing my own research because I myself, as well as others online who have been following the case for years, struggle to discredit some of these theories. Let me start with the first and most obvious suspect, who is the man that found Joseph's body. Frederick Bononis was the peeping Tom with the rabbit-chasing story who liked to spy on young girls at a church-regulated alternative school for the physically and mentally disabled. Police had every reason to suspect him given his odd story and even more so after finding out what he was really up to in his spare time. However, upon interrogation, he was cleared by a polygraph, although we all know how we feel about those. But from a modern victimology standpoint, it's unlikely that Frederick would be guilty of the murder of Joseph Zarelli, and I'll tell you why I think that. According to a study by Jean-Pierre Quay and Associates back in 2001, sex offenders are often consistent in their victim choice, unless they are offenders of people familiar to them. This is a widely accepted string of thought when it comes to sex offenders. Even though Frederick Bernones wasn't committing any violent sexual acts that we know of, he still was technically committing voyeurism. And even people who do that have a specific victim type. So if sexually motivated voyeurism was his thing, and that is the only type of crime that Frederick was committing, at least as far as we're concerned, that's all we know, then it's reasonable to acknowledge that the jump from being a peeping Tom to a violent sex offender and murderer is quite a large one. If Frederick Bononez is guilty of the murder of Joseph Zarelli, not only would he have had to drastically switch his victim preference, but also his crime type, and also dramatically escalate the level of violence from essentially zero to 100. Even further, and the most damning piece of evidence that disproves his involvement in Joseph's death, was that if he was a sexually motivated perpetrator, that wouldn't stack up against the conditions of Joseph's body because there were no signs of sexual assault. 
Personally, I think Frederick was a weird guy, but I don't think he's our guy. The second set of notable suspects were also easily cleared from involvement, but I think they're a really interesting case to note, and I'll tell you why. Philadelphia detectives would follow up on a story about two carnival workers, a couple, Kenneth and Irene Dudley, who were arrested in Virginia back in 1961 for causing the death of their seven-year-old daughter. Their daughter was found deceased from a mixture of malnutrition, exposure, and neglect, and even more shocking was the fact that the couple admitted this wasn't the first time one of their children died due to their neglect. According to the reports I read, Kenneth and Irene neglected and abused six out of 10 of their children to the point where they died, and then they disposed their bodies all across the Southern United States. Now, although the city of Philadelphia does not sit within a Southern state, to investigators, this story was worth following up on. Could the boy in the box have been dumped by this couple? It's certainly quite the coincidence that Kenneth and Irene made it a habit to abuse and neglect their children before disposing their bodies around the same time that Philadelphia police began investigating a case of a malnourished, abused, neglected young child who was found deceased. Even more interesting was that, as I had mentioned, the boy in the box obviously had a caretaker at some point in his life, again, given his surgical scars, given his trimmed nails, someone in his life was taking care of him at least to some extent. Could it have been Kenneth and Irene? Well, the answer was no. Joseph Zarelli was not their child, and they were able to rule out Kenneth and Irene well before Joseph was even identified. But I think this point is an interesting one, because it shows that Philadelphia police were willing to go to almost any length to ensure that any tips they were receiving were adequately followed up on. But if this story at all seemed promising, it was nothing but a red herring in the end. Another more plausible theory comes from 1960, when Remington Bristow from the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office found himself compelled to follow up on a theory about a nearby foster home being connected to the case of the boy in the box. This foster home was approximately one and a half miles or two and a half kilometers away from where Joseph's body was found. And bear with me, but it was during consultation with a psychic where Bristow's idea originated. Apparently, this psychic would describe a building that was involved with the case that happened to match up perfectly to the foster home he had in mind. And before long, this theory blew up, frankly, well out of proportion. And so due to what was likely some following harassment, although that is my speculation, only a year later in 1961, the family who owned and operated the foster home left the business entirely and moved out of the city for good. What followed this move was an estate sale of the building and all of its contents, and Bristow took this as an opportunity to investigate the grounds himself. Once he was inside, he discovered a bassinet, identical to the one that would have been inside the box that Joseph Zarelli was found instead. And remember, only 12 of these were sold by that particular J.C. Penney in Upper Darby, so to Bristow, I'm sure that this was more than just a major finding. His suspicions of the foster home and the family who ran it would only grow, as he would stumble upon a blanket hung on a clothesline that he thought matched the description of the blanket that Joseph Zarelli was callously wrapped in when he was discovered. 
These two findings to him, plus input from the psychic, were enough to lay the groundwork to start developing his own theory, and through whatever devices, he came up with one that involved the man who ran the foster home and his stepdaughter. Now, similarly to the family of Joseph Sorelli, you can find the name of this man and his stepdaughter online, but I'm not going to mention them here because, as I'll discuss in a moment, Philadelphia police ruled out their family entirely out of the investigation. However, some people still believe that the Philadelphia police might have been a little quick to do so, and so I'm going to keep telling you this theory. I'd love to know what you think. According to Bristow, he thought that the stepdaughter must have given birth to the boy in the box out of wedlock, and given societal norms at the time, and considering the large Catholic presence in the area, this was unacceptable. Thus, according to him, it was her and her stepfather who were responsible for the death and disposal of the boy in the box, and he used the bassinet he found, as well as the blanket on the clothesline, as evidence to substantiate his claim. Although at the time this theory was compelling to some, as I mentioned, Philadelphia police would rule out their involvement entirely after accounting for all eight children registered at the foster home back when Joseph died. Some argued that if he was born out of wedlock, he might not have been registered and possibly kept away from the other children entirely. But when police followed up with the family reluctantly in 1988, they were able to further verify that they were just not involved. Even as recently as 2001, when this foster home theory picked up some heat again after an airing of the case on CBS's 48 Hours, even calls made to investigators by people who were at the foster home at the time Joseph died, they were not really of value, and nobody who called in could provide any new information to investigators that they didn't already know. The final major theory that I want to discuss is one that many, including myself, go back and forth about. This theory's legitimacy seems viable, but certain unclear details of the case make it difficult to substantiate it without hearing anything directly from the Philadelphia police, which likely won't happen at least anytime soon. Bear with me. In February of 2002, a woman who we only know as M or Martha decided to approach the Philadelphia police with a story about a boy in a box who was not yet identified as Joseph Sorelli. M claimed to have been raised by an abusive mother, one who quote-unquote purchased a child in cash that M only knew as Jonathan. M claims this transaction happened back in 1954, and the young child, a boy, was subject to a short life riddled with physical abuse and even sexual violence for two and a half years. According to M, it was one evening at dinner back in 1957 when this young boy, Jonathan, threw up his dinner of baked beans. M's mother was so frustrated that she beat this young boy until he was semi-unconscious before being placed in a bathtub where he eventually died. M then claims to have helped her mother dispose of the boy's body, but I couldn't find any more details on what that disposal entailed, which is of particular relevance if she's aiming to shed light on what might have happened to the boy in the box. However, I think that this might be a set of details purposefully omitted from her story, and you'll see what I mean in a moment. Detectives reportedly felt like M's story was plausible, the bathtub situation would explain the boy in the box's water-wrinkled fingers, 
The dinner of baked beans being thrown up might explain the brown residue in his esophagus during the autopsy, and also the fact that his stomach was otherwise empty. Plus, the timeline of this boy dying matches up, as well as the boy in the box's choppy haircut that I had mentioned before. M claims that her mother did the same thing to this young boy, Jonathan, in an attempt to obscure his identity before disposing of his body. Lastly, people wanted to believe M's claims, and they understood that she had no incentive to come forward with this information, and according to most reports I've read, she in fact had more to lose than gain. According to that same archived report by the Philadelphia City paper I read, homicide detective Tom Augustine, as well as officers William Kelly and Joseph McGillan, at least also thought that M had a good life and a lot to lose if this story ever came to light. M had a great job at an academic institution with a PhD in her field. According to that article, she lives a good life as a scholar which could very well be jeopardized if a scandal about her disposing a young boy's body back in her childhood ever came to light. According to detectives, she was articulate, she was believable, and even those in the Vidoc society thought so. But according to them, they believe that M might know more than she's letting on, and that she might be intentionally leaving out details, refusing to be entirely forthcoming. It's unclear why they think she's being elusive, but some people use this fact, as well as allegedly a vast history of mental illness throughout her life, to discredit her claims. Personally, I'm not entirely sure where I stand on this theory. One of the many questions I have before I subscribe to any theories is what kind of information was readily available to the public when M came forward with her claims? Is it possible that the autopsy report was readily available online like it is now, and she was able to see details about his water-wrinkled fingers and brown residue in his esophagus and just use these details to conjure up a believable story? But if so, why would she even do that? It's very hard to tell, and again, you'll find people online who will debate you about this to no end. But in my opinion, out of all the theories, it's certainly the most believable one. In addition to the questions I have about the amount of information available to the public when M came forward with her claims, I have a bunch more questions. To this day, Philadelphia police are unable to identify the purchaser of the bassinet box that the boy was found in, despite only 12 of them being sold at the location where it was purchased in Upper Darby. I don't know how that is possible, and I would like to know that information, as I'm sure we all would. Regarding the pieces of evidence found at the scene, I would also like to know if those hairs reportedly found on that men's handkerchief with the G on it were retested with new DNA technology. Frankly, I want to know if these hairs even still exist, if they're held up in an evidence locker somewhere, waiting to be retested. Finally, given that detectives have now announced in 2022 that Joseph Zarelli had siblings on both sides of his family who are still alive today, I'm curious to know if any of them even knew they had an extra brother. Do any of them have faint memories of an extra child in their house for a short time while growing up? Were any of them told odd stories growing up by family members about a random cousin or an unexplained child in their household who was suddenly never there again one day? Over the past month, I've been trying my best to dig deep and find out answers to these questions online myself, honestly to no end. At the root of all these questions, what you'll mostly find is speculation, and that's really all we can do right now is speculate. 
Let me remind you that Philadelphia police only came forward with the identification of Joseph Sorelli this month, December 8th of 2022. Personally, I think this is a big step into hopefully finding out what happened to him. But until then, until we can get some more information, we'll just have to wait and see what we can figure out on our own. I hope that 2023 brings those answers for us. 2022 was so generous when it came to true crime cases being solved, and I hope that 2023 does the same, especially for this one. According to Philadelphia CBS, local residents in the community did not hesitate to begin paying their respects to Joseph's grave once his full name was released. The very next day, after the announcement of his name by Philadelphia police, people had already left flowers, wreaths, toys, and an oversized Christmas ornament engraved with his full name, Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast, and the last one of 2022. I'm feeling very grateful and lucky to be ending off another year with you all, and I hope to see you here for the next one on January 15th of 2023, and I hope you're as excited as I am to dive into new cases and new theories in the new year. As always, if you have a case suggestion, you can send it to me on my website at crimopediapod.ca under the suggestion forum on the homepage, or you can DM me on Instagram at crimopediapod. I'd love to hear what you think about this case or what you think about any others that you'd like to hear on the show. I'm very much looking forward to a great lineup for 2023. Until then, Happy New Year's everybody, stay safe, and I'll see you here next time. 